The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. Hello! Today's episode is all about volunteerism. I'm super excited to have our guest on today and to unpack the sticky issues surrounding volunteerism. Pippa Biddle is a writer. Since 2014, much of her work has centered on the nexus of tourism and volunteer work, commonly known as volunteerism. Her work on volunteerism has been featured in numerous media outlets, including the New York Times, The Independent and Al Jazeera. Pippa is featured in two documentary films addressing volunteerism, Volunteers Unleashed from 2015 and When I Say Africa, coming out in the near future. She's a contributor to Modern Day Slavery and Orphanage Tourism, which was released just last week, a book that examines the connection between orphanage tourism and child trafficking, and for which I'm also a contributor and editor. Her first book, called Owls to Explore, Privilege, Power and the Paradox of Volunteerism is an expose of volunteerism as contemporary colonialism and is forthcoming from the University of Nebraska Press. Pippa has appeared as a guest speaker on volunteerism at numerous universities, institutions and events around the world. She lives in the Hudson Valley region of New York. Welcome to the Do Gooder podcast, Pippa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, I'm super excited to have you. So, as you know, I'm interested in understanding what motivates people to do good. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? For me, doing good is less couched in action and more couched in perception of how we act in the world. I live in a very small town. I grew up in a small community and for most of my life so far, the idea of doing good has been framed in an outward looking way. You do good to others, you do good outside of where you are. I think my work in voluntourism and my experiences as a voluntourist have really forced me to, to shift that perspective and pivot it more inwards. It's how someone chooses to live their life on a daily basis, it's how they choose to engage in their community, not just volunteering at things, but on a daily basis, engaging in our community in a way that is respectful and that is kind and that is seeking to raise the people around them, not just when it's convenient, but when it's needed, um, and also when it is just appreciated. So would I be right in saying you see it as an ongoing practice both inward looking and in your local community rather than a kind of a one-time activity of going out there and doing something good? Yeah, absolutely. When we think about doing good as something that can be packaged and put in a box and dealt with and then 
put back on a shelf, that's to me completely wrong. It's something that needs to be this ongoing practice that really is really deeply linked to thankfulness and gratitude. And some of this can sound a little cheesy to people, but it's true that we all live better lives when we operate from a place of thankfulness and gratitude and doing good is tightly, tightly linked to that. Do you think growing up in a small town has influenced your view of community and giving back? Oh, absolutely. For me as a kid, I could walk outside my door and I could walk just around the block without crossing a single street and go to the candy store and the toy store and they all knew me. They knew my sisters. The cops knew not to call and say there's a runaway. They knew us. And that level of familiarity, that level of closeness is something that I think a lot of people are looking for. It's one of the reasons a lot of people look outside of their community to try to find that level of closeness and familiarity. And it's one of the things that I feel if we reconnect with more closely, we'll actually do a better job doing good because we'll have a better understanding of who is around us and how, what part we play in that broader community, whether it's local or whether it's larger. I want to just touch on something you you mentioned before. You talked about the idea of doing good as being packaged up and provided to us as something to engage in. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think that the idea of doing good as a package is really something that comes from the fact that it can be sold. Doing good as far as it's concerned with volunteering really didn't arise, and, and you know, I, I nerd out on a lot of this stuff, it really did not arise until the Victorian era. The middle class was seeing poverty around them. So they wanted to be able to engage. They wanted to be able to do good in their community. They wanted to be able to help those that were around them. Um, and many of the ways in which they tried to help, we would now see as quite unhelpful or even cruel, but they did come out of a place of thinking that they were they were providing and and so anytime there's people who want to do something a market is going to build up around that that's just the way markets work entrepreneurship is a magical thing and it's birthed out of a desire or a need and there was a desire and a need and so it grew and at the same time tourism was growing and that's when you really get the first poverty tours it's when you get the first slum tours it's when you get these groups of people, individuals and people traveling as groups, and, and some of the first solo female travelers uh, who were not of the absolute upper class, really being able to pay in to engaging in a given way. And then that's just grown from there. And it's as it's flowed and the popularity has come and gone, which is one of the reasons why we think of voluntourism as a more modern phenomena. Yeah. because it hasn't always been super popular it hasn't always been something that's uh, on everyone's lips and it's definitely itself voluntourism is a relatively contemporary phrase but the idea that volunteering and giving back has be sold is really a product of the mid-19th century Interesting. And I, I want to go more into your book and what you discuss around the origins of volunteerism a bit later, but I'm interested in your journey on this. And to do that, I want to head right back to 2014 when you wrote an article called The Problem with Little White Girls and Boys, Why I Stopped Being a Volunteerist, 
which has had more than 2 million views and been republished across a huge amount of platforms globally. And in the article, you talk about your high school experience of volunteering in a Tanzanian orphanage. And you share that while your mission there was to build a library, you would spend six hours each day building a library. Every night, the local men would have to tear your work down and rebuild. And you also talk about in the same article, your experience of volunteering in the Dominican Republic with HIV positive kids and your realization that your presence was, and I quote you here, not the godsend I was coached by nonprofits, documentaries and service programs to believe it would be. Can you talk us through, first of all, what motivated you to write that article in the first place? And I'm quite interested in that last quote around that you were coached to believe it would be a certain experience. Writing that piece was really a spur of the moment thing. Um, It wasn't something that I'd been mulling over for months. I had remained involved with the nonprofit in the Dominican Republic. I remain involved with them still to this day. Uh, They're a really impactful and astounding clinic that one of the things they do is work with pediatric HIV AIDS patients and I was getting coffee and actually to be fair I was getting hot chocolate <laughs> in New York City uh, with the director of the nonprofit and we were just talking about my experience and what they needed and what was going on with the clinic and with some of the kids that I'd worked with for a while at that point and paused me and she asked me why I kept referring to myself as a little white girl and I hadn't realized I was doing it. I'd been speaking sort of in broad strokes about my role there and the confusion I had over how there was a disconnect between how much I was celebrated for being part of it and how much I was actually contributing. Those two did not match up with the emphasis being on celebrated, not on contributing. As I was trying to explain that to her, I guess I sort of fell into this verbal pattern of referring to myself as a little white girl. And I didn't really have an answer for her in that moment as to why I was saying it that way. But it, it made me start thinking. And when I got back to my apartment, I sat down and I really wrote the piece in one go. And I sent it to a couple friends, uh, one of whom was my sister, one of my sisters, and I asked them to let me know if there was anything in it that was horribly offensive, because I knew that I was talking about something that was difficult, and I was mentioning some stuff, specifically race, especially, that people do not tend to respond well to um, when brought up especially when brought up by someone who looks like me, which for listeners is white with blue eyes, about <laughs> <and laughs> as European as you can get uh, without being blonde. My sister flagged a couple of things. I think I changed 50% of what she flagged and the other 50, I said, okay, if someone's pissed off by that, that's okay, because that's how it needs to be said. Um, and I published it on a blog that I'd only started shortly before. And the blog was, was not themed around travel at all. And a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you try putting this on Medium? I hear that it has a really big audience. And I did. And I went to the gym and I came back and it had thousands of views. Wow. Um, and my, no one read my blog. It really just sort of rolled from there. And, and I, it's 
important, I think, to note that I was so clueless about the conversations going on in the voluntourism space and about voluntourism when I wrote the piece that I thought I invented the word voluntourism. <laughs> like, I thought I was brilliant that I'd come up with this amazing portmanteau. And thank God I Googled it before. <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda has some great quote where he says that whenever he comes up with a line that he thinks is too good to be true, he Googles it to see if someone else has come up with it. Yeah. Um, I did not know that he said that. I don't think he said it yet when I did this, but thank God I Googled <laughs> and learned that I didn't know I could not take credit <laughs> for a term that at that point had been used for over a decade. I think it's important to emphasize that my first couple pieces, especially the first one on voluntourism, are really an act of processing. So much of what I understand now was birthed out of those pieces, not necessarily present yet in those pieces. I think the nuggets, the ideas, the, the little things are there, but I hadn't read articles about volunteerism. I hadn't read books. I hadn't engaged with the academia of it. Yeah. I really was speaking from a place of raw emotion and struggling to figure out who I was within a space. And I think that's what resonated with people a lot is it turns out there were a lot of people feeling that way. Absolutely. And as I said before, this, this idea that you were coached throughout your life by nonprofits, documentaries, and service programs to believe that your presence in helping would be a positive. I'm, I'm really interested in that because I think that's something that we do see coming through volunteerism, particularly in the school's context. It's hard to overemphasize how much I was told I could save the world. Yeah. And, and it was by a huge variety of people. And I'd almost put my parents at the bottom of that list, not that they just discouraged me. But I went to a boarding school in the U.S. I'm, I'm very lucky educationally, and I got to go to an amazing high school where part of the motto of the school is that we will go out to shape a changing world. But as a shape a changing world was something that I was hearing all of the time. And when you pair that with this um, culture of volunteering, volunteering must be the way in which to do it, especially when you're so young that you can't get a job, you can't be a Peace Corps volunteer, you can't necessarily pursue game-changing actions at such a young age, but you can book a trip. You can sign up to volunteer. And so there's that accessibility. And so people are telling you, well, you're supposed to change the world, and this is a way you can do it. And nonprofits, I think, especially that work with young people, are very good at communicating the potential young people have to have an impact. In many ways, that is an absolutely amazing thing because young people should feel empowered and they should feel responsible. The problem is when that you can do something does not have any caveats around it, does not have any guidance around it. Yeah. That lets you run wild. <laughs> That's what lets you start taking advantage of things. And then you also layer on a layer of privilege and the fact that I have faced very few obstacles in my life. That is just a reality, which isn't to say I have not struggled, but there's a difference between this normal human struggle and having to jump over hurdles. I haven't had many hurdles. And when you don't have many hurdles 
you don't have context and you don't have a sense of awareness of your place within society. You get to exist in this wonderful little bubble of perfect where everything you do is awesome. And when everything you do is awesome, how could anything you possibly do be wrong? And so when a nonprofit or your school or your parents or your community tell you, you can change the world, you think you can, so you think you do. And it's not until much later that I really looked back and thought, wow, that's enormously hubristic. Yeah. And it's also to my detriment. I did not benefit from being led to believe that what I was doing was helping people. They did not benefit from that. I know they, they were harmed. That's something I've learned through yeah. my own work. And I believe I was harmed yeah, in that. And the hardest part is every single person in that chain thought they were helping. Yeah, and they had the best of intentions, right? You can see the evolution of these thoughts in your writing because a few months after that first article, and we're still in 2014 here, you wrote another article that was called Little White Girls Aren't the Problem with Volunteerism, Privilege Is. And in it, you talk about different types of privilege and how they impact the world of volunteerism. And you specifically say, and I quote again, it's about unrecognized privilege and it's about an unequal exchange where volunteers benefit greatly and those who are meant to benefit rarely do so in a sustainable and long-term manner. I'm really interested in how you think privilege impacts our decisions to engage in helping or doing good versus those people that you're talking about that did have the hurdles. Well, in volunteerism, the vast majority of volunteerists are from coming from the United States are white. The vast majority come from middle or higher up family, middle class or higher income families. The vast majority have access to higher education, which is not an assumed thing in the United States. That says something that the vast majority of people who buy into a system come from a certain background. I think that an interesting aspect of that piece and of sort of my evolution in talking about privilege is one, I've, I realize that whiteness is profoundly triggering for people and sometimes the best way to talk about privilege with someone regardless of race is through things that are less visual because people become very uncomfortable with something that's, that's visible that they cannot alter about themselves. But there's a very real difference in mentality between people who have not been told they can't have everything and people who've been told they're lucky to have anything. That is a very different just way to to exist in the world, which is not to say that every single white girl from Westchester, New York, who comes from a family of economic privilege has never struggled. It's not to say that there aren't challenges. Um, And that's one of the biggest problems actually in this conversation is that people say, oh, well, because I came from a family that was unstable, that actually privilege doesn't apply to me. Or because yes, I'm white, but I came from a family that wasn't economically advantaged. This doesn't apply to me. Privilege is not a zero-sum game. You don't have to check all the boxes for it to impact you. And you can have 
a very poor white man from an impoverished area who has privilege, and you can have a very, very wealthy Latina woman who also has privilege. You don't have to compare them and see who ranks higher. But specifically when it comes to international development, the way that race plays out and financial privilege plays out is something that we've been able to watch over a century, over almost two centuries now, through colonialism um, and far longer through other forms of conquest. And we've seen how this repeats. We are part of a cycle. And just because what we are doing now does not include the same types of physical violence that it has in the past, mm-hmm. it does not make it a nonviolent act. And it's hard. It is hard and it's understandably painful to imagine yourself as a voluntarist being part of a sort of conscripted army that is acting violence upon other places because you didn't sign up for that. That's not the thing you bought when you bought a trip. That's understandable. Uh, But that's the reality of what it is, is that we are signing up to be members of a colonizing force that has a different name. And it isn't until we actually recognize that and recognize our role in it and how the way we look and where we come from and our background and the the sort of white boy confidence that we carry with us, how that impacts the places we go. Until we recognize that, we can't even begin to process not only the damage we're doing, but also ourselves. And that's hard, that's painful. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's very hard to understand all of these concepts without looking back and understanding where these ideas and motivations come from. And back in 2018, you wrote an article for my blog at altoglobalconsulting.com, and it was called Volunteerism, Blame It on the Victorians. And in it, you unpack the historical context of volunteerism. And I know that your forthcoming book delves much deeper into this, but can you walk us through the very origins of volunteerism? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but can you, can you take us right back? So volunteerism can be tracked in some way, shape or form, basically to the beginning of when humans traveled. There have always been humans that have gone places that have done good, quote-unquote good, while in those places. Generally, the good that they believe they're doing is actually quite harmful. It's erasing cultures. It's erasing faith. It's erasing people. But it's out of a place, to speak of intention, of, of thinking that they're doing good. I actually root voluntarism in the 1840s. And the reason why for that is because while tourism existed prior to the Industrial Revolution, it really did not exist at anything near the scale we consider to be tourism today. Yes, people traveled. Yes, there were hotels. It was uncomfortable. It was inefficient. It was extraordinarily inaccessible. But in the 1840s, all of a sudden, you have these amazing inventions of locomotion and human movement that make it easier, faster, cheaper for people to move than ever before. And with that comes the birth of the tourism industry. That's where we get um, Amex comes up around then. You have all these amazing entrepreneurs who are building businesses around tourism. And one of them is the now defunct Thomas Cook, 
And Thomas Cook was a man who throughout his entire life was led by a very, very strong internal sense of purpose. He pledged not to drink at quite a young age. He worked as a traveling missionary. He basically built his entire life around trying to help others live better. And at one point in the 1840s, early in the 1840s, he had the realization that one of the ways he may be able to get people in his community to stop drinking as much, basically get them out of the bars and outside, would be to take them on trips. And so his first trips were for the benefit of his travelers. But as he started running these trips and people started signing on, he also looked for ways to have his travelers give back. And one example is uh, on the island of Iona, off of Scotland, he uh, would stop his tours in the middle and give a speech and ask his travelers who'd already paid to go on this trip to donate money to help the local village that was hosting them. And over time, the village got enough money that they were able to buy a new fishing fleet. And that really just sort of repeated over and over in his travels and in the trips that he ran in the Holy Land, what's now the Middle East and North Africa, he would finance the handing out of bread Hmm. to people and try to do it in an organized way because he wasn't a big fan of how travelers were sort of giving things out in an unorganized way that sometimes got a little frantic. And he really was doing all of it out of a place of goodness. And what that manifested was what I consider to be the very earliest volunteerism. It's short-term travel. Mm-hmm. It is unskilled. It is with a desire to do good and give back, paired with a desire to expand oneself, um, to become a better person, to become a more informed person, to become a more globally aware person, and to have a fun time. And so that's really where I root volunteerism. A lot of people point to the 1990s, and the boom of ecotourism. Yeah. And it's true that volunteerism really grew and came into the mainstream as ecotourism grew up and became popular and alternative tourism really got a foothold. And that's when you see big eco-lodges going up, which by the way, eco-lodge does not mean anything. But <laughs> that's, that's when you start seeing all of that. Um, but it's so important to remember that the actual a mentality behind volunteerism and the core ideas behind it are not something of the 1990s. They are not something birthed alongside grunge. They're, they're something <laughs> that goes far further back. And that is, in fact, from the same time as the growth of the colonial empire. Mm. And that the only reason Thomas Cole could go to these places was because he was following in colonialism. Every time he expanded where he took his trips, it's because civilization had, quote-unquote, had gone there first. Interesting. There were now European hotels his guests could stay at. There were European guys they could hire. And so then they went, and then they decided they could help. And that is really a pattern that we've just continued to repeat ever since. Yes, it's, it's really interesting that all of those kind of key elements that you you say were present at the birth of volunteerism are actually really present right now today absolutely it's we like to pretend that we're independent actors we like to believe that we operate independent of what has happened before and what will come after us the reality is that 
we are a product of what has happened and what has come before us, and we are the ingredients for what will come next. And unless we really internalize that and find peace with that, we're not going to be able to make good decisions because so many of the decisions that we're making right now and how we engage with other cultures and other communities come out of a place of discomfort. What brings us into all-inclusive resorts instead of staying locally is discomfort. <laughs> it's a discomfort with being where someone actually is. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the Caribbean and you stay on your cruise ship or you're staying your inclusive, are you ever in the Caribbean? When we travel alternatively, when we try to find eco-resorts, that's out of a place of discomfort. It's out of a place of guilt. It's feeling bad for what's happened. It's feeling bad for what we're doing. We're buying a flight and we're flying somewhere and we're ruining the world. And so we must make up for it by not washing our towels. When we buy a volunteerism trip, that's coming from a place of discomfort. I want to see the world. I want to go and visit a Maasai tribe in Tanzania, but I can't just do that. Because that would be that would be too privileged, and that would be undermining their poverty. So I must go help them with their poverty first. So is volunteerism a way to, I guess, reduce guilt while traveling? Absolutely, volunteerism is a guilt-based reaction. It is a combination of a desire to adventure, which is a human desire. Not every human wants to, but I'd say probably the vast majority have somewhere on their bucket list they want to go, um, and a guilt that, one, they have the ability to go there, because travel is an extraordinary privilege. Uh, it's not just a financial privilege. There is something very scary and important in the fact that I can, right now, buy a flight to Tanzania, land, walk up to a desk, and get a tourist visa for around 100 bucks and then be off and not have to plan ahead at all. I can do whatever I want while I'm there, as long as it's within the law, and I'm good. In order for a Tanzanian individual to come here uh, to the United States, they have to jump through a very, very, very long list of ridiculous hurdles that is designed to keep them out. Yeah. And it is fascinating that I get to go wherever I want, and those people who I get to visit cannot come to where I'm from. Not many people think about that, but I do think it impacts a lot of how we engage with other places yeah. because there is this guilt that if I have the privilege to be able to go somewhere, I better do something while I'm there that's positive. The actual action being positive, however, ends up being less important than me feeling that it was. So is there a commodification of the guilt? For example, you can, you can sit behind your computer and say, I want to go to Tanzania and I want to volunteer. And you can do a quick Google, you can find a website, you can click your destination, when you want to go, what you want to do volunteering, you can pay with your credit card and you're off. Yeah, a really important thing you did not mention there, uh, because it doesn't exist, is having to say what you're actually qualified to do. Yes, yes. It's a fascinating part of this industry, is that you don't have to be qualified for anything. Um, you just have to want to do it. And there's 
uh, line in the Bible that goes along with God equips the called, um, in that it does not matter skill you have. All that matters is that you feel compelled to do it and that you will, in fact, be given the skill you need as a byproduct of you feeling called to do it, uh, which I find to be an extraordinarily dangerous concept <laughs> as a whole. I definitely don't want my doctor to simply have the ability to operate on me because they feel called to do it. <laughs> but I think that the language that's being used and the process of purchasing trips is absolutely critical uh, when it comes to catering to people who feel guilty. So uh, you can save the world. You can change your life, change someone else's life, uh, bring hope to Haiti. Uh, there was a poster when I was in college that was on a wall that said, bring hope to Haiti. And it had a picture of a black hand reaching up towards a pencil. And I was so close to just tearing it down and then realized there were security cameras and I did not want to be in trouble. But like those messages are so, so bad and they're harmful and they're not just harmful to the people in Haiti who are being depicted that way. In fact, I'd say that poster is more harmful to people who actually see it. Yeah. The people who are walking up and down the hallway at a university who are seeing this message that says, all you have to do is pay a couple thousand bucks, set aside a spring break, and you can change the world. You can make up for all the things that you feel privileged about because you're at this university. And you can, you can sort of build up your karma piggy bank that for the rest of the year, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and that's a really interesting aspect of volunteerism is that people who volunteer at home before they do volunteerism continue volunteering at home. Yep. There is very, very, very little evidence that people who do not volunteer at home, who do volunteerism, go on to volunteer at home in any meaningful or long-term way. They say they will uh, mm -hmm. because... If someone were to ask me, will you give back when you get home? I won't say no. Yeah. Like, you don't want to be the one who says no. No, and you're inspired. You know, you've had a positive experience in, for the most part, and you're feeling inspired, and you, you have the intention to perhaps volunteer when you get home. But the reality is you just slip back into life. Yeah, and that's one of the glories of travel, is it's an escape. Yeah. You don't bring uh, the orphanage home with you. You don't bring the school home with you. You don't bring the kids home with you. So why would you bring this like endorphin rush you got from them home mm. with you? Instead, you go book another trip because you want to feel that way again. This is something that I wrote about in my section of the book, but that's so important in the orphanage tourism and modern day slavery book is that one of the key driving factors in this is that it feels good. It feels really good to have a kid run up and hug you and want to sit on your lap. What you're seeing in that action is trauma. What you're seeing Absolutely. is mental illness. You are seeing harm manifested in a human being. But for the couple of days that you are there, what you think you're seeing is love. And it is very hard to tell someone that what they saw as love was actually abuse. Absolutely. And for our listeners out there, uh, working in the orphanage volunteerism space, we have a lot of returned volunteers talk about how beautiful it was for them to experience these children climbing all over them and cuddling them and wrestling with them 
And they almost use that as a justification for saying, how could this be bad? These children were happy and content and we were giving them love for a short time and they were receiving it. And what they're actually experiencing is a sign of a very serious attachment disorder from a child development perspective. It is not normal for children to show indiscriminate affection to complete strangers. And as you said, what they're experiencing is vastly different to what those children are experiencing. Yeah, and it's, it's very scary. And I can say that there have been many times since 2014 that I wish I could forget. It would be really awesome to be able to walk into a childcare center and sit down on the floor and feel amazing. Unfortunately, you can't go back once you learn something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, and you should never, and everyone should be learning this. But I can empathize with people who don't want to accept that feeling. They don't want to accept that what they did was wrong. Now, not wanting to accept it is not an excuse <laughs> yeah. for continuing to do an action. It's not. And, and something I find so frustrating, I mean, we were in Atlanta last year. I was with Lee and, and on behalf of World Challenge or working with World Challenge and uh, World Challenge is, I know you worked with them in phasing orphanages out of their programming, which is such a huge move for really an old guard student travel company that works with thousands of students a year. And there was an individual at the presentation who after over an hour of hearing about why orphanages are not something we should go to, basically said, yes, but (laughs) my experience is different. What we do is different. There is no yes, but there is none. This needs to stop. And, And I get asked often if I could change one thing about volunteerism immediately, what would it be? And it'd be get people out of out of childcare situations, right. not just orphanages, also out of schools, unless yeah. they are social workers or actual teachers who are working on professional development with other teachers, not with children, get them out of there. Because there are, I believe, some ways that volunteering outside of your community can be productive. Most mm-hmm. of those ways involve uh, science, actually, and ecology, and they generally don't involve interacting with people. They involve things like counting birds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's a reason they're not as popular. There's yeah. a reason that working with children is the number one thing volunteers want to do. It's because children trigger a much higher endorphin rush, I've heard, than bird watching. Yes. But, <laughs> but it's the reality that, like, if I could change one thing, it's, it's get people out of areas in where, where children are concerned because that is where harm is manifesting in a way that is truly irreversible. And I I like your point about uh, that person that stood up and shared their experience at that event in Atlanta, because that's probably one of the most common responses is, okay, I hear you. This is horrible. I'm horrified that this kind of harm could be coming to children, but not my orphanage, not my experience. And it's this cognitive dissonance between what they're hearing and accepting on one level, but they cannot apply it. And I guess the conclusion that I've come to around this is that because people have such an emotive and a deep emotive experience connecting with children, and as you said, they they have all the endorphins that come along with that, 
and these feelings of love and contribution and giving back that it's just way too confronting to undo that and to face that what they have done might actually be causing harm. Yeah, and it's, it's hard because uh, a number of years ago, I worked with a student named Bethany who was pursuing a public health degree at her university and was part of a public health club. And the club had for years done medical volunteerism opportunities where they were doing actual medical work. And she read my work and contacted me and said, hey, would you be willing to uh, come speak at my school? And then from there, we worked together on helping her find an opportunity for her club that was still traveling to another country. It was still medically oriented, but it was all shadowing. Yeah. So it was all shadowing local doctors. And there's still problems associated with that, but it, it really reduces a lot of the issues. Yeah. Um, that come in, cause they're there as students. They're there to learn. They're there in a place of being secondary to local expertise. And it worked out really, really well. And, and then she graduated. And we had a conversation before she graduated. She said, they're already planning our next trip. And they're planning on doing going back to what we did before. And that's after over a year of, of education around why what they've done before was harmful. It was so frustrating for her. And it was hard to watch it because... She'd done what she could do. She she provided the information. She guided the best she could. And people still keep going back to the thing that's easy and that feels the best and that makes them feel um, the most powerful. And it feels a lot more powerful to have a needle in your hand than it does to have a clipboard taking notes. Unfortunately, one of the aspects of privilege that plays out through all of this is that sort of greediness for power and feeling that power and an inability to step back and contextualize experience and defer to local voices. And one of the hardest parts of this conversation is the lack of local voices. Absolutely. Um, that's something that came up a lot in my book uh, as I was working on it. And I'm lucky to have local voices in my book. Uh, that was the hardest thing to find. And many of them would only speak anonymously hmm. because they do not want to be the member of their community who scares away the people who do are, are bringing some money. Yeah. They are bringing some money. They are bringing some business. They are building the building their government is refusing to build because the government says people will come do it for free, so why should we do it? So it's, it's hard because just in having these conversations, there is this huge void. There are people missing. And on one end, I feel... Uh, lucky that I've been able to have a lot of these conversations and get people thinking on another end. It's sort of absurd that I was able to be celebrated and uh, rewarded uh, socially by my community for doing something that I now know to be unethical. And now I get to be on podcasts and talk and write a book about how I did things yeah. that were unethical. <laughs> um, and that is itself a very complicated switch and both situations are retaining of power absolutely. Um, and what we really need is a power shift absolutely absolutely and I think that you know that's something that I think is is a really healthy approach to understanding our role as you say privileged white women who are holding these conversations in the absence of a lot of voices that should be heard and that's certainly something that I hope to bring into this discussion as well is the, the people that are on the other side of our do-gooding, 
And what was it like to experience the the good intentions of others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's some really amazing activism now coming out of, especially East Africa, yeah. uh, from care leavers. So people who've aged out of orphanages or been kicked out of orphanage-type situations where they're now standing up and they're speaking out and they're serving their community while also advocating on behalf of themselves and those around them. And those stories are so important. Yeah. I think a lot of what Rethink Orphanages have been doing, uh, elevating those voices, is really just mind-blowing. And I think that one of the things that's been the most productive has been seeing how those conversations can be had in a way local local voices can have these conversations in a way that is empathetic to the complication and that is asking for different action. One of the challenges in this conversation of volunteerism is often it becomes pretty uh, heated and can become a little bit prickly often in a way that forces, doesn't force, it really kicks, the, the people who most need to hear it out because they kick themselves out. Yeah. They don't like how they're being talked to. They don't like what they're hearing, so they leave the conversation. And unfortunately, those are the people we most need to be meeting. So something that I've tried to do in my work is to constantly implicate myself and to allow myself to be the one who is the bad guy. When I give presentations, I prioritize using photos of myself in situations that I consider to be inappropriate, especially being holding young children of color um, who I do not have a long friendship with. They are not members of my family. They are not the children of my friends. They are random children. And the reason I use my photos is because if I am going to be calling out someone else for something I've done, I better be able to, to really call myself out at the same time. And I would love for there to be fewer photos of me with black kids who I do not know online, it is, it is a little bit frustrating, especially because there are photos that are now all over the place. And some of these cases, these are kids that I know. Yeah. And these are kids that have grown up into really amazing adults. And they are smart and they are wonderful. And regardless of whether they're smart or wonderful, they did not consent to be in that photo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's everywhere. But I do think that given that those photos are everywhere, given that they, they are going to be up no matter what I can do, because thank you, Google, using them to say, look, this is me. This is something I've done. Let's start the conversation on me. is really a better way of welcoming people into a conversation than saying, you, 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 you did something wrong. You should feel bad. We can get there eventually. Absolutely. But it's not productive to start there. Absolutely. In the beginning of this conversation, you talked about the influence that growing up in a small town and in a small community had on you and your views around doing good. And then also the influence of of external actors such as school and not-for-profits and documentaries and, I guess, popular culture. Is there any one in your life that has been a positive influence in on you doing good? Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of people. 
people who've been really positive influences on me in my life with doing good. But I point to two specifically. One would be my mom. Yeah. Like that's the cheesiest answer, but uh, <laughs> my mom is a lifelong volunteer. She was on the volunteer ambulance corps. She works at the community center every week. Um, every Christmas, we'd be making meals for our local soup kitchen. I grew up in a very, very affluent community, and I did not know that there were homeless people in our area until my mom basically called us out one day and said, how dare you not know this? Poverty exists here. Um, And we have, it is our responsibility to be part of the solution to it and not ignore it. And then between high school and college, I took a year off, which in the U.S. is not common. Uh, So I took a gap year and worked full time for an organization called the Jane Goodall Institute. And I was working with the youth program, which is Roots and Shoots. Really, me getting the job was a bit of a ridiculous situation. I heard about it four days before the application was due, found out I got it. I think the day before my high school graduation, I'd already deferred university for a year. I had no backup plan. My parents were not about to finance a Euro trip. So, <laughs> so it was either that or I'd probably be working at a coffee shop. And for a year, I advocated for an organization. It was my job to travel around the country and internationally basically speaking to kids about how they could do good. Mm. And one of the core aspects of the Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots mentality is think global, act local. That is really at the core of what they do. And that that was where my my mentality really started to shift. Mm. And I started to look more critically at some of the stuff I've done because I was advocating for a type of action that was not the same action I've been taking. I've been thinking about how I could do things that were big. And a key thing that I was advocating for now was doing things that were small. I had the privilege of working alongside uh, Dr. Jingal on various occasions throughout my fellowship. And she's an astounding woman. The people around her are as astounding and inspiring, although their names are far less well-known. And it was really uh, sobering to see the impact that one person can have on a planet when they decide to put ego to the side. She's very famous. So of course, there's, there's ego there at some point. But when they decide that a mission is more important than and a purpose, a mission and a purpose, are more important than credit. And something that I've been told always is you want credit, you want the trophy, you want the certificate, you want proof that you've been somewhere and you've done something. And that was a really interesting experience to learn that in fact that stuff's all meaningless and worthless. And uh, it ends up in the bottom drawer of your dresser and you forget about it. And if you actually want to have an impact, you actually want to do good, Uh, It takes a lot more than striving for a trophy. Absolutely. So now I'm going to shift slightly away from from the volunteerism subject and ask you what I ask all of my guests. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And this is something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. I mean... I go pretty simple when I think about greatest social challenge of our time. For me, a lot of it comes down to food and hunger. Mm. The fact that there are people who starve is baffling. 
It makes no sense. However, which way you look at it, whether you look at it scientifically from an agricultural perspective, from an economic perspective, from an anthropological perspective, from a political perspective, it makes no sense. And instead of investing resources in addressing something that needs to be addressed on a local scale, we are building buildings we call schools that never have a teacher because we want to be able to have the plaque outside of it that says we built this building is astonishing to me. Progress is multi-generational. It takes time. And a lot of how the developing world has been, which itself is a construct, but the quote-unquote developing world has been addressing, has been a, a patchwork of just absolute white elephants, as in failed aid projects, that is baffling. And the reality is, is that when I see a photo of a kid walking down a road barefoot with a distended stomach, I do not care if they have an education ever in their life. What I care about is if they have access to clean water, access to good food, good nutritious food that is culturally appropriate, that's fit, that's food they want, that they would eat, that's not just being dumped on them because it's what other people don't want, and that they have access to good medical care. I then hope that their children get really good locally important education, which is to say that we should not be educating people to a British standard. We should not be educating people to an American standard. We know that our standards are terrible. We are learning that the way we are educating people is shit. So why are we continuing to export it as a product as if it's this miraculous thing? We need to be providing you with vocational education that they can actually apply in their communities to combat brain drain. And they need to have food the entire time. So unless we start thinking about these basic things and thinking about them as building blocks, that it's multi-generational, you, you cannot solve eight things all at once. You do not solve a lack of medical care by throwing a bunch of high schoolers at a community and handing them land sets. Like, that's not a solution. And, and some people look at me like I'm cruel when I talk about this and how dare you say, I mean, every, every person does deserve an education. Every person deserves to be healthy. It is a human right. But that doesn't mean we can deliver it all at once. And it doesn't mean that sort of the throwing darts at a board and hoping they stick is working. And for me, the first thing then is make sure people are fed. Uh, and again, just to reemphasize, are fed in a way that is desirous to them and culturally correct. Aid, the way that we are doing aid by giving out like meals that are already done and packets of nutrients like they're a freaking marathoner is not useful because that's also breaking down the cultural bonds and cultural ties that are built around food. Um, and that's just another way to destroy a community is to take them out of the kitchen. So, so going on from that, and I love how passionate you are about this. It's, it's wonderful. If you could tell the world something and know that every person would hear it, what would it be? Stop. Listen. We're very bad at that. We're very bad at stopping and listening. And so many of the problems we face would be solved if we took a chill pill and listened. And actually listened. Not just didn't talk. Because not talking and listening are distinctly different actions. <laughs> so I'm not saying stop and be silent. 
to go stop and listen. Communities are telling us what they want. They're saying what they need. Whether it's a community that is stereotypically seen as, at, as in need or your own community at home. You can see a lot when you actually give yourself the time and the space to see it and to hear it. Yeah. And I wish more people would do that. I wish I would do it more. I think I'm as bad at it as everyone else. That's a message to not just everyone in the world, but myself as well. Uh, is that we need to stop and we need to listen. It's interesting you say that. I've had another guest on the podcast, Neil Harvey, who's a program manager at a philanthropic foundation here in Australia called the Maya Foundation. And his response to these questions was, was quite similar, that we need to create a container for listening. We need to stop doing sometimes and take a step back and we need to listen. I think this is another sort of thing that we're told we should be doing things a certain way. We are told we should be doing. We are told we should be active. People are rewarded for what often amounts to treading water or Mm. running in place. And they're being sort of given a ribbon for the fact that they're so active and they're so purposeful. And the the reality is they're not moving forward. (laughs) They're not going anywhere. And so we need to stop rewarding ineffective action so much and start rewarding listening definitely definitely so tell me about someone that you think is doing a lot of good in the world right now and why i'm going to take the absolute uh millennial answer and say i think greta thunberg is an absolute g and not just because climate change is an astronomical issue that i put sort of right alongside feeding people because they're very 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 interconnected but because she is reminding people that it is possible to be quietly powerful because she speaks out like no one's business, but she also has a presence that doesn't need to be allowed. And we live in a, in a community, a global community and in a global society where loudness, whether it's through social media or it's through conversations, loudness is rewarded. And through the simple action of sitting in front of a building with a sign, she's been able to catalyze one of what I consider to be the most important global movements of my lifetime. And I think it's important that we look to her not just as a role model in the climate change debate, but in how we deal with all global issues. Pigeonholing her and her style of activism to one vertical would be doing a disservice to really what she provides as an individual and as a, as a symbol and the leadership model that she is pushing forward, which I feel is the leadership model that we need to be emphasizing and prioritizing and celebrating and raising children to follow. Definitely. So to wrap up, I've got a couple of standard questions that I'm asking everybody. What's your favorite place on earth or where is your favorite place on earth? The Hudson Valley. Where you live. Hudson Valley of New York. It is where I live. It is uh, the only place I ever want to live. My husband and I are restoring a 120-year-old farmhouse here. Wow. That was in the same family for over 100 years. I love it here. It is creative. It is thoughtful. It's also not in a tornado alley, a forest fire zone, on a fault line, or close to rising seawater. So (laughs) that may have gone into my math. When I was deciding on a place to fall in love with. But I I also really like the idea that 
I get to live somewhere that is where I want to be rather than looking externally for somewhere and, and thinking, sort of reminiscing over that, that place I went to that was my favorite place in the world, oh, but it's not where I live. I think almost any place in the world can become your favorite place if you decide to make it that. Yeah. And so that's, I've decided that this is mine. That's very true. That's very true. And final question, what book are you reading or podcast are you listening to now? I don't know if the book I'm reading, anyone would know what it is. It's quite old. The book I just finished is Nickel Boys. Nickel Boys is uh, Colson Whitehead's 2019 novel. Uh, it deals with race. It deals with the American South. It deals with uh, abuse, racially motivated abuse, and also abuse of boys at a period of time in American history uh, that unfortunately really hasn't ended. But it's, it's a fascinating book, and it's brilliantly written. If I were to say a podcast I'm listening to, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but one that I'm just always drawn back to is Revisionist History, the Malcolm Gladwell's podcast. It's smart, it's interesting, and it forces a different perspective. Excellent. Excellent. I am going to add that one to my list, actually. Thank you, Pippa, so much for a fascinating and passionate discussion. I always love talking to you. And I think from the the first time we spoke, we had a lot to say to each other. And I'm grateful that I've got to work with you on the Modern Slavery and Orphanage Tourism book, which, as I said, came out last week. And I cannot wait to read your book. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and share. Head to www.leematthews.com to find out more.